if we don't see empathy as a chore and a heavy lift, but rather an opportunity for reconnecting to things that actually matter to us fundamentally as human beings, and we started to put that into practice more often, we would realize how much it feels good, how much it actually benefits our lives, and it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Welcome to the Awaken the Awesome podcast with your host, Olivier Day. This is Awaken the Awesome, a podcast bringing a down-to-earth approach to personal growth. On this show, we're helping individuals just like you learn about tapping into their incredible potential through insightful interviews and inspiring lessons. Our mission is to encourage you to always keep pushing towards achieving your dreams and to stay awesome along the way. Empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. I came across my next guest content and mission through a wonderful podcast interview she gave on the topic. Anita Novak is an empathy expert, author, award-winning educator, international speaker, podcaster, and certified coach. Her extensive work revolves around fostering empathy in individuals and organizations, recognizing that true understanding and connection require more than just feeling emotions. It involves cognitive empathy, which allows us to understand how others think and feel. She has committed herself towards serving values-driven organizations dedicated to social impact, and her incredible resume will attest to that. She is the founder of Purposeful Empathy by Design, a global advisory firm that helps purpose-driven organizations create cultures of empathy and social impact. In April 2023, she published the incredibly impactful book, Purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Organizational, and Social Change, which you should definitely check out. She is also the host of the wildly successful Purposeful Empathy podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Given her incredibly accomplished career and thought-provoking insights on the matter, I loved how approachable and down-to-earth she boiled down something that she emphasizes should be a guiding compass for us all, not just as leaders or organizations, but also as people. On this episode, Anita teaches us about the importance of being truly intentional when choosing to empathize with others, brings us much-needed clarity in differentiating sympathy versus empathy, how to be more empathetic leaders, and so much more. So let's get into this. Awaken the Awesome, episode 206 with Anita Novak. Here we go. Which is why, you know, just hearing from your story, and I really want to open up with this, Anita, because it really means a lot to me to have you on. Why? Because hearing your stories about leadership, about uh, connection, about bringing back the humanity and how we relate to each other, whether, you know, as leaders, either through our businesses, uh, because this podcast, our audience isn't really about, you know, it's not really business leadership growth centered, but we're very human centered. That's something I always bring forward. And why your work really touches me, because it really brought me back to a personal story. And you're going to laugh at this one really short. Uh, when I was a kid, I watched this movie with uh, starring uh, Matthew Perry of Friends and Sama Hayek. And the story, the, the movie is called Fool's Rush In. It's a really old, old movie. And uh, long story short, they were married and they were expecting a baby. And he was working for a design firm. And I believe uh, maybe making it up, but he was designing either a hotel or a casino. Big project, big career, moneymaker and stuff. And his boss, they were overseeing the site. Said, OK, we're going to open up. And like, I want you to be front and center with the clients when we open up on that day. And he's like, OK, so when's the opening? And he's like, and boss was like, June. And he looked at his boss was like, well, well, the baby's due in June. And boss looked at him and like, well, you know, you got to make it work. And I remember watching that movie. I was a kid then. And I told myself, you know what? I promise to be a very understanding boss. And why I tell that story 
is because the first time I became a manager, I have no idea why I made that connection. But one time an employee, new employee, weekend shift coming in and she called me really early. Like, Ollie, I can't come in because my son is sick. And I didn't even skip a beat. It's like, okay, your son is sick. Stay home with your son. Call me later. We'll discuss your hours and we'll take it out. But right now, focus on your son. All right. You take care. I didn't even skip a beat. And I've carried that throughout my career. And why I love all the things that you bring forward is that I've, sometimes in certain workplaces, I've, always, I've often felt weird for being so forthcoming with my heart, leading with my heart, as opposed to just with the KPIs and the hours and stuff. But hearing your work and leading with the heart and leading with understanding, you know, the person's perspective helps us grow as individuals, not just personally, but also ethically, humanly. And that's why I celebrate you because you bring you know, such a wonderful light to the fact of how important it is to exercise our empathy, find our empathy and not shy away from it, from your work, from your teachings. You're a scholar, you're an author, you're a person of a tremendous pedigree. <laughs> it's like it's an honor and a thrill to welcome you on the podcast. So thank you so much for everything that you do. It's a thrill to have you on. Ollie, thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I think wherever we are, even in workplaces, we are human beings first. And there are some human needs that we have that have never changed since we were since we first walked the planet as a species and one of them is a sense of belonging and uh, a sense of be wanting to be seen um, and and wanting to be in communion and i think that there's so much about not only our workplaces and our classrooms and our public policies but the systems that sort of govern modern day society um, just make that harder to do even though we're really and so thank you for sharing that wow because it means so much it means so much because we often neglect the fact that you know what you have to take you have to be able to see the bigger picture because we are part of a whole we are a community and which is why you know i really wanted to ask you like where where did this curiosity where would where did this uh dedication to you know to to study the concept of empathy and why did it matter so much to you oh okay so the origin story it's interesting <laughs> because a lot of people think that i come from psychology studying empathy and that you know i was on a mission initially to study mm -hmm. empathy but it actually happened the other way around empathy found me oh yeah so um i have a quite a multidisciplinary background my first degree is in business then media and communications and i was doing my phd in the faculty of education love it and I had an interesting experience with my thesis supervisor because halfway through my degree, um, I wanted to take a year off and he advised me not to do that. But I was asked to, to take on a new job, which was an exciting job. And I knew I couldn't do both simultaneously. So he said, well, you know, there's a lot of people who take a year off and then never come back. So that's the risk you're taking. Wow. I, said, I said, OK, fair enough. Maybe that's what the st stats bear out. But I'm I'm committed. But I just need this first year to focus on the professional side and then I'll come back. Anyways, halfway through that year, he called me into his office just as for a touch point. And he said, oh, what's new? How, how, how's life? What's going on? And I honestly, I came into the meeting with no agenda. Um, it was March of 2008. And that summer I was going with my sister to Rwanda. Mm -hmm. uh, we were, we'd done some very, very uh, grassroots fundraising. I think we'd raised maximum $10,000 to help a woman's collective launch a microfinance project. We wow. wanted like 
it literally came to uh, what what what's the need of the organization? And they said we want to start a training program with sewing machines. And I said, great, let's buy some sewing. Let's help let's you buy out. some sewing machines. Okay, right. So, anyways, I was telling about this trip, and Michael, my supervisor, said to me, uh, "I don't think you're going to finish your thesis topic. I don't think you're going to graduate." And I said, well, that's harsh. Whoa, and okay. he said, look, I just heard you talking about your trip to Rwanda and you got lit up. And his words were like a Christmas tree. And he said, but that's not how I'm sensing that you feel about your current topic. Okay. And he he so the meeting lasted maybe 10 minutes. And the, the, he kind of sent me on my way with this bit of advice. He said, I want you to go home, Anita. I bet you have a drawer or a box or a folder or something that you use to stash random stuff. Go find that thing, find what's inside the thing, and then you'll know what you're really passionate about. And then he said, okay, see you later. Let's touch base in two months. And I walked out of his office, Ali. I was so upset with him. Like, how dare he question what I was how passionate dare you? about? Yeah, yeah. Putting so much work on this thing. Yeah. So about two weeks later, I got over my ego and I got curious. And I was like, I wonder if he is right about something. Like, is it possible that I have this secret stash? And I went through like every nook and cranny of my apartment, including like this is down to the detail, including a filing cabinet where I had all my taxes, you know, and your mm -hmm. like your car insurance and whatever. And I went through every file and I found one that was in my handwriting called miscellaneous, which I was wow. not even conscious that I had. And I spread open the contents and I had little coupon, like clippings from newspaper articles. I had stubs from conferences that I attended. I had some notes, like everything was pretty wow. random. I had stuff about acid rain and stuff about the HIV AIDS crisis in South Africa. I had all sorts of things. And I didn't see a common thread until I came across one little article about a boy in Ontario who had gone to school without shoes for a week because he had just learned about childhood poverty in the global south and wanted to know what it was like to have no shoes to go to school and wanted to raise awareness. Oh. And that little story was like the moment where I understood that I was attracted to people who saw problems in the world and wanted to do something about it. And I was agnostic to what issue they were interested in. Uh, I was just interested in change makers. And I had not heard of the word social entrepreneur until that point. But then I started to like really think about, well, who are the change makers? Who are the people? There's activists, there's artists. Mm -hmm. And there was this new thing called social entrepreneurship bubbling up. And so I started to do some research about social entrepreneurship. And to my to Michael's credit, I did switch my topic entirely, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. And I interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of social entrepreneurs. Some were at startup, some were at full global scale with lots of funding. They were working on things like climate change, homelessness, access to education, literacy. Like, again, I didn't care what they were, the work that they were doing. I just wanted to understand, did they have anything in common that might inform me about how to teach the next generation to become change makers. Mm. And there were two things that they had in common across every single interview with no exception. The one, the first thing was they all had service modeled in their home, meaning to say like their parents volunteered and then brought them to the volunteering or 
you know, whatever service looked like, they all had this, they were nurtured by the value of you give back. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. And then the second thing was that they all felt like they saw people who were suffering in one way or the other, disenfranchised, marginalized, whatever word you want to use. And they all felt this compulsion, like a need to act on the empathy that they felt for others. So, you know, the work that I did for my PhD was developing what I called a pedagogy of empathic action. And that has been what has informed all of my teaching. But then I kind of got really excited about empathy being a lever, empathy being something that can ignite the kind of change that we need to see in the world. And because I've spent 10 years studying empathy, I've looked at it from the point of view of how can it change our own personal lives, which it can have massive um, massive repercussions in a positive way. How can it improve our relationships? How can it improve our workplaces? And how can it change the world? So it found me, empathy found me thanks to that conversation with Michael. That is spectacular. That is spectacular. I'm smiling because it is so, it is, you talk, there are two points that I want to bring up is because of the fact that you did not let the ego, you know, uh, dictate the, the, the path that you took because a lot of people, unfortunately, that we get that initial crit outside criticism from a valuable source, a source that cares, a source of truth, a source of experience. But sometimes we just like, what does this person know? Well, take two seconds. Maybe you're not on the right path because we also on this path of change, on this path of growth, we sometimes are very resistant to, to, to bring this change because sometimes change is hard. Change is uncomfortable. And yeah, this person might be right. I might be having put so much effort in that direction and that's totally the wrong direction. So I congratulate you for that. And I want people to take an example because sometimes you're so you know, focused on this one little thing that matters so much to you that you don't even see all the opportunities that are just flying around you when your thing is like right there. All you need is just one simple shift. And I love that example. The second one was the fact that you went back to the source. You talked about your filing cabinets. You talk about these stubs. You talk about different, you know, just different tokens that have, you know, spread little seeds, spread little clues in regards to who you are and what matters to you. And I want people to hear this because what Anita is saying is that lo and behold, everybody for some reason is trying to find their purpose now. Everyone is trying to dig deep and that's okay. You have to, I believe so. And I believe that it, the answer is not so far from what I'm getting from your story. The fact that if you pay attention to the very simple, even little mundane things that spark you, I love that word, that spark you, the truth is right there and you should dive into that. So thank you. There's so much of our world right now that puts you on a track, a track of what success looks like. And I think to a certain extent, we are beholden to that socialized track. And I see it sometimes with my students that their pain, they're in, they're taking courses or they're doing entire degrees in a painful way because they feel it's the thing that they need to do. They feel society's putting pressure or their parents are putting pressure or they are putting themselves under pressure mm. to be something in the world. And they're so unhappy. And I, there are major decisions like, you know, when you make the decision to leave the private sector, as you have done to pursue a passion, um, there are there are associated costs mm -hmm. for sure. But we tend to sort of think about, well, then we can't have a mortgage, we can't buy the car, we can't go away on the vacation, we won't have this, that, and the other, which is one set of 
reality. Mm-hmm. But the the benefit of making that change is better health, better sleep, better relationships, better, you know, marriages, so better, much. you know, like all of that. And I think we have to come to uh, have to make a decision about like, well, what do we value? What do we truly value? And I think if you if you listen carefully to that voice, for the most part, most people are are intrinsically motivated by values that are not necessarily celebrated by our culture at the moment. Um, so thanks for thanks for bringing that up. That's awesome. I know that they the the two can actually often be confused, but can you try to differentiate sympathy from empathy, or is there a difference, or are they one and the same? Sometimes I get it confused, even myself. Yeah. So um, there's a there are a whole host of words that are sort of part of what I call the altruistic emotion continuum. On one side is pity, next up is sympathy, then compassion and then empathy. Mm -hmm. And I put them on that continuum on purpose because on the pity side of things, there's power asymmetry embedded in the relationship. That's what makes the pity side of things problematic because there's poor you, you look down on somebody that you pity. Mm -hmm. Sympathy is a better, like is an improvement over pity, but it's still not what you want to um, feel. What you want to feel in terms of human relations is empathy because with empathy, at least the way I frame it, is that that power asymmetry dissolves. So we might have very different lived experiences, but we both know what it's like to have to live in the human condition. We both have access and experience with love and disappointment and shame and fear and all those human emotions. So empathy is what actually unites us in our common humanity without denying the lived experience. So you can't fully, 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 fully know what someone else is living because they're just living a different life, mm-hmm. but we have access to these shared human emotions. And so I get often asked the question, well, what about compassion and empathy? And the answer to that is that empathy is actually two phenomena that coexist. One of them is affective empathy, which happens to our heart. Yes. So for example, you see um, a kid at a playground, like laughing and doesn't it put a smile on your face, right? Just like, just, you just said that and I'm already smiling. Exactly. And then you see somebody tub their, stub their toe and you kind of like have a wince, right? And that's because we have what's known as mirror neurons. So we have mm-hmm. these neurons in our brain that allow us to feel emotional contagion or emotional resonance with someone else. And it just happens to us. So compassion is very much like that because it's emotional. I feel what you feel. Okay. Those are very important things that connect us. Um, But cognitive empathy is, it it actually is empathy that involves our neocortex. It involves our higher order thinking. It really is about perspective taking. So stepping out of your own frame of reference and imagining what someone else is going through is cognitive empathy. And so, again, I find that um, empathy is a, is a much more powerful frame than these other words because it allows us to choose to be empathic and diminish the, any kind of power differential where we see each other as full humans and can hold space for each other, whatever the emotion is that comes up, whatever the experience is that comes up. That is what I believe in your words uh, from your book when you call your hidden superpower. Sometimes is that's why I want to piggyback on what you just said is that is it something that as hidden, how do we uncover that? Because if it's a superpower that we all have, but a lot of us just shy away from it or we don't even know it's there. 
But what are, are there practical ways or do we have to connect with everybody? Do we have to, you know, just look out for them? It's like, oh, somebody fell or someone's laughing. How, how do we exercise that? Because I believe it's a habit. It's a muscle. Or am I totally wrong on that? No, it is. It's something that we definitely can build. Um, so let's go back to 40,000 years ago. So the, the people who study our evolutionary history say that Homo sapiens wandered the earth with like four or five other large brain species, but we're the ones who survived. Why? And the, um, some of the research that they've discovered about how our bodies changed compared to these other creatures is that most of our facial hair dropped off. Mo like we are relatively speaking, our testosterone dropped. But for okay. me, one of the most interesting things is the whites of our eyes grew very, very big. Oh, I didn't know okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So as mammals, uh, in terms of our ra the ratio of our eyes, we have the whitest sets of eyes on the planet with any, okay. any living mammal. Now, why is that? Now, you tell me, Ollie, have you been in a meeting where somebody has said something and you've shared a knowing glance with somebody and mm -hmm. it said it all, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you know what it's like even with a family member or whatever. You don't have to say anything and we can express a lot. Well, they, they, they believe that we found ways to communicate with each other across distance and without using language where it really was sort of like an early form of empathy to understand what the other person was trying to, to, to communicate mm -hmm. for the purpose of collaboration. So empathy and collaboration has been part of our successful evolution as a species. Now, what I feel has happened over time is as we've socialized, as we've organized into very, very sophisticated um, ways of living, right, with the flow of products and services and all the sort of like technology, is that that basic capacity exists in us and can be what allows us to continue to thrive as a species, but it's been dulled by so many other things that we've put privilege on. So one of the things that I do when I when I have presentations and I and I show slides is I show the difference between um, like a chimpanzee, for example, um, which has been studied by primatologists and um, is known to be sort of hierarchical by nature, prone to open acts of warfare, um, violent violence. So there's a you know chimpanzees can also be very kind, but there's all this whole host of kind of um, suboptimal ways of being. And we believe that human nature is much like chimpanzee culture because we have all of that too, right? Like the Olympics, but then also all the history, you know, littered with war. And there's, there's this um, primatologist by the name of Franz Duval who has studied bonobos for mm -hmm. decades. And so the pictures that I show are a picture of bonobos and humans and bonobos and humans and bonobos and humans. And there's pictures of like tenderness, like romantic affection. Then there's, you know, a baby on the chest of a bonobo, like a, a bonobo baby and a bonobo mom or, wow. or dad. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, kind of see that in terms of like how we are as adults or not adults, but as human beings. Mm -hmm. So I make the point that we are also very bonobo like, but that's not what is celebrated in our culture. That's not, I mean, we have some examples of it. We have some beautiful love stories, movies. We know it from our own personal lives, but there's this impression that human nature is very like only ambitious, only interested in like power and hierarchy. When in fact, we are very, very um, familiar with and, 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 and love community and love sharing 
And, you know, when, when, when we hear of natural disasters, we have this like natural tendency to want to help. And so when you're asking me the question, why do I call it a hidden superpower? It's that it's, it's, it's an, a, a relatively unflexed muscle in contemporary society. So we have a lot of empathy for our in-group, which is, you know, one of our limitations as a human being. And what mm -hmm. we need to do is open up to have more empathy beyond our in-group because we can choose to do that. We can choose public policies that are more empathic, where more people can share the blessings and share the resources of, of the world. Yes. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, there, the answer is pl plenty, plenty, okay. because what, what I love about your talks, um, especially when you bring up how corporations and leaders bring a more ethical, a more human, a more empathetic way to manage not just their employees and their mission statements, if you will. It's something that has to be admired. And I also appreciate the fact when a company really makes it their duty to make empathy part of their fabric. What I mean, what I mean by that is that, okay, Yes, we are in capitalist society and it's okay to you know seek profits, but also can we be human in that regard? Can we, how much good can we do? Where are these resources going and are we better for it as human beings? Because eventually we want to inspire to do good. And on a human scale, for me, it's very important because I have two young kids and I'm growing up, I always bring them a lot in my recordings because I always remember that I am the human that they're going to use as a mold to shape themselves as individuals. And the word empathy keeps coming back a lot because I want them to be very aware of the people around them. Someone falls, you say, are you okay? Someone needs some help. You always have that instinct, that reaction to say, how do you feel? And these are conversations that unfortunately I didn't have growing up, not saying that, you know, my growing up was problematic is because that I never remember sitting down and having the perspective of how does this make you feel? Mm -hmm. I may not have your reality, but how does this make you feel? My daughter's had some issues at school, whether through bullying, everything, she's 10, things will happen. But I purposely sit down and say like, you know what, let's take two seconds. Let's talk about this. How does this make you feel? And it's an exercise. You're right. It is an exercise. And you're never too old to learn. So you don't need to be rigid. And that's what I want people to take from this, because you have the opportunity to open your mind and open your heart and do and be aware of everything around you, because there's too much distraction going on. And mm -hmm. this is what's going to connect us. And you, we can only be the better for it. So that's why I wanted to ask the question, because I want people to understand that this is not some woo-woo stuff. It is very practical. It's very tactical. It's something that we can all learn from. And is that what, what spot, well, I, I, before asking the question, um, reverse question, is there, can we have too much empathy? As yeah. in, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes I felt that maybe I'm too understanding. Maybe I'm too much of a you know giving person like here let me give you a hug can we have too much empathy or is that is that me just making it up the more empathy leaders show in their workplaces the more engaged their offices are the less turnover they have the less mental health issues they have the less um you know it, it matters so much in terms of like actual kpis and, and 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 bottom line numbers because with more trust in the workplace and better communication people don't assume the worst of each other you get an email and it's kind of like quick you don't just say mm, what's the matter with this person mm -hmm. it's like oh they're busy or whatever like you just kind of accept that this is just like a quick email and so that allows more innovation to take place because people in order for innovation to take place, you have to start taking risks because you're like thinking outside the box. So there's just like this whole host of 
benefits that happen in the workplace when you have more empathy embedded in the culture and in the leadership. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I want to kind of um, talk about. But is there too much empathy and can we be too empathic? The answer is absolutely yes. So there are some instances where, um, you know, if it's too touchy feely, people might feel like they are, you know, they're you're, you're at work, for example, you are working, there's like a mandate to the workplace. So you don't want touchy-feely, open, you know, emotional conversations to come at a cost to actual the work. The work. The work, right? So there's a time and place for everything. Okay. But in your personal life, there's also the, the possibility of feeling um, empathy fatigue or compassion fatigue, where let's say, for example, you're some, especially in certain professions, like in nursing and teaching and mm -hmm. psychology, wherever you're, you're part of your job is to care for the well-being of others. Then it's really important that you actually find mechanisms and ways to recharge your battery, taking enough time off, having opportunities to debrief after a difficult conversation or a different difficult interaction. And in some professions, that's part of the training, right? But in other professions, like in leadership, for example, you have to find ways of also ensuring that you don't carry the heaviness and the burden of the emotional burden of, of that day without finding a right outlet for it, because otherwise it manifests in different ways. And I think there's also another category of people called the empaths, highly sensitive people, which is really a distinct category than highly empathic people. So we can all have high levels of empathy, but that doesn't necessarily mean we are an empath or a highly sensitive person. That category of people actually are overwhelmed by stimulus. So if they'll go into a shopping mall and the music is loud and the number of people walking everywhere and, and just all of the, the sensory overload can be too much. And they can walk into an office space and they can feel the energy of different people in the office. And it, they're like a sponge to that emotion, to all those emotions. So those people actually also need to protect um, uh, themselves so that they also safeguard their own personal well-being so that they're functional. And I really love the fact that it can be boiled down to the simple concept of caring. Because I believe that empathy, first and foremost, is about caring. You have to care enough to take purposeful action. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it all boils down to what you said really in, in, in the recording that, you know what, you have to seek out what matters to you and not just say like, oh, that would be nice. Well, what can we do about it? Because I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's not always about, you know, starting a fundraiser or, you know, just opening up a, a hospital in Rwanda or something. Cause some people start trying to make it too complicated. Empathy can be as simple as Okay, understanding what the person next to you feels and if you can actually bring some positive progression to the process. That in itself is empathy 101 and we can actually build on that. And it's it's something that's re that's really heartwarming. Well, so I I share this anecdote quite often because I think it's really powerful. When I started learning about the brain science of empathy, and the fact that we can become more empathic with practice like that is we can train we can create stronger neural pathways by repeating a thought or repeating a behavior mm -hmm. so we can actually will ourselves to more empathy um i started doing a lot of experiments and i have this one very distinct memory of being in the lineup at a fedex store oh, i love this story yeah mm -hmm. 
So it's worth sharing because mm -hmm. this is the this is the day to day way of expressing empathy. So I'm in a long lineup. Took 30 minutes to get to the counter. It was the holiday season. This is long before we had cell phones to distract us. So by the time I got up to the counter, I was a bit like annoyed. Like let's just send this package already. And the woman who greeted me was rude. And you know, there's rude, and then there's really like, wow, rude. And that's where she was at. And I was just like, whoa. And I wanted to like call her out on it. Mm -hmm. And I had, I wanted to have a word with her. Um, and then just in a flash, I was like, oh, but this is a moment for, for me to practice empathy. Let's see what could come of this. Now I didn't spend time like reflecting on this, but just in an instant, I was like, okay, let me practice empathy. So what came out of my mouth was, are you okay? Are you okay? That's what I asked her. I said, are you okay? Love it. And she burst into tears and she told me that she was working for two weeks, double shifts. Her son was at home with a fever. She wow. thought she was getting sick herself. She hadn't had a lunch break and it was three in the afternoon. She's like, I'm just exhausted. And of course she was. Of course. And by sharing that, I felt nothing but empathy for her. Of mm -hmm. course she was rude. She was at her complete and utter limit. And it was amazing to me how 20 seconds earlier, I hated this woman. I was like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. And then just this little bit of, sharing where she's at and realizing like, Oh, I've been there and just holding space for her to just like, just expunge a little bit, like feel heard a little bit humanize. Like she probably didn't feel humanized by all the interactions all day long. She just needed a little bit of humanity. Just that, see me for two seconds. Just to see her for two seconds. So every day we come across experiences where we could either turn the switch on empathy or turn up the volume of empathy. And what I what I like to say is that I don't want empathy to be like yet another to do in our like, you know, inexhaustible list of to do's. I want to say, guess what? It turns out that it's really good for us. And that that is scientific. The brain centers called the reward and brain, the reward, uh, pleasure and reward centers of our brain. Mm -hmm light up when we're eating like a delicious piece of chocolate cake or we're high on psychedelics, the same pleasure and reward centers light up when we're feeling emotionally connected to somebody. To an experience. So, mm -hmm. Right? So if somebody was actually had some like, you know, something on my brain, monitoring my brain as we were holding space while she was crying with me, we would have realized that my pleasure and reward centers would have been lighting up because I was holding space and being kind to her and that feels good to me. And we would have seen a whole lot of physiological changes. My immune system would be functioning better. Cortisol would be replaced by oxytocin. So like the bad hormones would be replaced by the good hormones. And so I think the, the, the biggest message that I have is if we don't see empathy as a chore and a heavy lift, but rather an opportunity for reconnecting to things that actually matter to us fundamentally as human beings. And we started to put that into practice more often. We would realize how much it feels good, how much it actually benefits our lives, and it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then we would turn to beyond just the inter the day-to-day -day actions that we can take for more empathy in our lives, holding space for people at home, learning to be self-aware about how we are feeling triggered in order to take some deep breaths to show up as a more empathic person then. And of course this is making some assumptions, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, when I had, I was at a book club meeting recently with people who'd read my book. And one of the things that came up is all this purposeful empathy stuff is wonderful, but it also does feel like it's kind of in a place where you have to have some degree of privilege in order to practice it. Mm -hmm. 
And I accept the fact that to a certain extent, to make the decision to leave a private sector job, to pursue a passion project has a degree of, uh, of, of privilege embedded into it. But I know, having traveled to over 65 countries, having seen poverty, okay, across different parts of the planet, that poor people can also show great empathy. Yes. Okay. And that em empathy is not just for privileged people. Um, you know, as people who do have privilege, I think it's beholden upon us to actually sure. practice more purposeful empathy. Yes. But empathy is a human trait that exists across any sociostratus. I love it. I love it. Wow. I'm so full. I am so full. And I've learned so much. It's uh, it's humbling. It's humbling because this is definitely the type of message and insights that we need every day. You know, just to add just a little bit more, uh, you know, tools to our personal formula towards our own personal growth as leaders, as, you know, heads of household, fathers, mothers, individuals. It's something that we are incredibly grateful for. You know, time and insights like yours are something that needs to be celebrated. I know we're coming up on top of the hour. You're a super awesome person for being so generous of your time. Um, really, Anita, I, of course, I do want to uh, to invite everyone to uh, check out your book because uh, I did buy it. Guys, get it, get it. Is, this, is it better to get it on your website or on Amazon or do you have particular places? Oh, anywhere online that's easy for you. In Montreal, mm -hmm. there's a few copies available at the McGill Bookstore on Sherbrooke Street, I know. Um, but yeah, wherever you normally buy books. Uh, the book is purposeful, book. purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Organizational, and Social Change. Anita Novak, it's been a pleasure, an honor, and a thrill. If anyone wants to connect with you, uh, you know, following this recording, you know, on the interwebs or any particular places we can direct them to. LinkedIn or send me an email at purposefulempathy at gmail.com. Man, it's been a tremendous, tremendous treat. Guys, do go check out Anita's content and the Purposeful Empathy podcast yeah. is uh, is definitely one I subscribe to and I love it. I love it. I love it. If you want to dive more into wonderful conversations with uh, thought leaders and empathy enthusiasts that they're called, uh, definitely worth your time. Guys, as always, thank you so much for supporting the mission, awakenyawesome.ca, where you find out the entire back catalog. Anita, thank you so much again for your time. It is, we're so much better for it. Guys, as always, do stay blessed, stay safe, as always do. Stay awesome. This has been another episode of the Awaken the Awesome podcast. We always love to get your feedback, so please do drop us a line via Instagram, Facebook, or email. Our email address, awakentheawesome at gmail.com. Do visit our official website at awakentheawesome.ca, where you can find our entire back catalog of episodes and incredible guests. Also, if you haven't already, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, give us a rating, and leave us a review, as this helps us tremendously in growing this podcast and spreading the word to more awesome listeners like you. We always appreciate your support, and thank you for listening. Stay awesome.